BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Hey, welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. In this era, when I think a lot of us are thinking about the changes that generative AI is going to bring to our future, we're thinking about what it means to be human. And embedded in that question is who we are and how we conceive of our identity and our sense of self. This is a topic that longtime listeners of Inquiring Minds will know has fascinated me for decades now. And I've wanted to think about the implications that other people have on our sense of self. Brian Lowry has written a book called Selfless about how our social interactions also influence our own sense of self. Brian Lowry is the Walter Kenneth Kilpatrick Professor of Organizational Behavior at Stanford University's Graduate School of Business, and he also hosts his own podcast called Know What You See. Brian Lowry, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thanks for having me. It's such a pleasure to have you, especially at a time when our whole sense of self is being questioned by generative AI. (laughs) Is that right? Do you feel questioned by it? Do you feel questioned by it? I mean, you know, I feel questioned about my future and what myself is going to be able to do. (laughs) You you know, Um, even before we jump in, let me just say, I was talking to a friend of mine and she, she works in media. She does writing. And she was worried about it. I was like, why are you worried about it? She's like, because it's not as good as what I write, but it's almost as good. And it might be as good. And I was like, oh, okay, I get it. If you're worried about that, you should be worried. (laughs) But the the reason you shouldn't worry is the process is not the same. The the way it does it, it has nothing to do with the way human beings produce. So that you're safe on. If you're worried about your job there, I can't help you. (laughs) Well, I mean, I think that's a great entry point into your book. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and, you know, this idea of of, uh, of the self. So your book is actually titled Selfless, which, of course, when you read it, you understand what that means. Uh, this idea that we have a unique, constant, unchanging self is, I think, really what you're questioning. So tell us about 
your approach to this core idea that I think it's one of those things that people say it's it's like porn, you know, I just know I have it. I can't put a finger on it. I can't define it. But I just know I know it when I see it. I know I have a self. <laughs> yeah, you know, I think um, most people now wouldn't. Well, I don't know. A lot of people would actually. We're very religious. But I think when people say self, what they really mean is something more like a soul right? That they existed in some supernatural way before, in, you know, they existed as a physical being and that the the physical being is really just a vessel for this soul with all these attributes etched onto the soul that just are somehow poured into the body. Um, and, and that seems to be nonsensical. And so that's what I push against. <laughs> Yeah, and then and and okay, so like let's say you you have a, a solid grounding in you know science or even neuroscience or you know just the biology and the fact that the workings of the brain are tied to a physical substance uh, or the workings of the mind, I should say, are tied to a physical substance. And so you can argue, okay, well, sure, there must be some way in which a self is constructed by this biological brain. Um, but in fact, uh, you're suggesting that's not the case. Uh, exactly. I'm pushing against that too. I yeah. think the self is constructed um, in the context of interactions that human beings, so to be human, um, requires other people. I mean, I think everyone, I don't know everyone, most people agree on this, right? So that's one reason that solitary confinement is considered cruel and unusual, that human beings are just not designed to be alone. Um, and in fact, what I'm arguing is that to be human, to have a self as we understand it, requires other people that the self is constructed in those relationships. And that's why people can't be alone. They cannot be themselves by themselves. And on the one hand, that seems like, OK, that's a little bit different from how most people conceive of it. But it's also kind of a radical idea because it takes... Um, it means that your social interactions and other people have a huge influence on who you are, even in your own, even in the privacy of your own thoughts. Here's the thing about that. Yeah, I guess that feels radical, but how could that not be true? Come on. You, you, you know, everyone knows that's true. When you say it, when you said it out loud, yeah. you had to be like, that must be true. <laughs> Look, I, I agree with it's everything just, in, in your book, so <laughs> but I just want to lay out is, the argument. <laughs> but you know, the thing is, it's um, what I find really, one of the things I find really interesting is that it doesn't feel that way, that it feels like we're whole and complete by ourselves. It feels like it's just us in there. It feels like we're deciding independent of what other people think and believe. It feels that way. And so what I'm saying, I think, in the book, what I'm saying is that the way it feels might not be how it is. And in fact, some of the things that I say don't require much thought to, to, or reflection to see. It probably isn't the way it feels. But there's something about that uh, disconnect between the experience of life in the world and ourselves and what is more likely true. So tell us about some of the ways in which when you're trying to explain this to people who are skeptical what are some of the examples you give for, for, for these ideas? Oh, you know, I think um, the easiest example is just to say, think about if you have a close partner. And for most people, and you know, it, you know, if you're an adult, most people, it's their, their romantic partner, but it could be your parents. And think about how much those people influence who you are. 
not just because they you care about them. No, like the day to day of being around them changes you. And I think people understand that. And other examples you can just give are like, look, you think you like things because you like them, but you don't like that color just because you like that color. You like that color for all sorts of reasons that you have no experience of, like you don't have, you have no clue that's influencing you. And you can see this in the world, right? I remember a couple of years ago, all the, all the women, a lot of women around me wearing this like kind of fluorescent yellowish green, you know, fingernail polish. I was like, why, why are you, what? And like, I would ask someone and just like, I don't know. It just seemed like, it seemed I like, I liked it. I liked it when I saw it. But you can, everybody can't just happen to like the same color. There's something going on, right? But the way they're being influenced is outside of their conscious experience, right? It's the interactions around them, what they see, who they talk to, all these things that are pushing them in a particular direction without their, without their knowledge. And you can see this too cross-culturally, right? So there are cultures who eat ants happily, right? Like it's a part of what they consume as like a snack. And other cultures where that sounds disgusting, right? How can that be? Like, how can some people love that and other people think it's disgusting, right? It's the cultural influence of people around you. I mean, there's all these ways in which you can see who you are, what you love, what you think about is influenced by things that are clearly outside of you. Yeah. And, you know, there's there's a whole ad industry <laughs> that not only capitalizes on uh, the fact that they they can influence people's decisions when it comes to where they spend their money. But there's also this sense in the industry that the most effective type of advertising is the advertising that makes you convince yourself that it was your decision all along. <laughs> so what do you think is the what like, why do you think um I mean, maybe this is like too far afield, but evolutionarily, like, why have we, is this, is this a vestige of other things? Um, or like, why, why are we so attached to this sense that we have the freedom to act and we have the self that directs a lot of our behavior and we choose to do things as opposed to being forced to do things and, and why it's so much more rewarding to think I chose this um, than someone made me do it. Well, sometimes it's more painful to think you chose it too. Just to be clear. <laughs> if it doesn't go well. Yeah, if you, sure. if you made a few bad decisions, you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Um, I don't know. It's an interesting question. So in the book, one of the things I talk about is that um, it's, it doesn't seem that it's always been the case that we've had this kind of conception of self, right? There are uh, classicists who argue that the way we think of the self now is relatively new that the ancients didn't think of, right. They, they, they were talking to themselves in their head. They, they thought of it as, you know, spirits or gods, right. That motivated them, that told them what to do. And you still have some of that today, right? Like you can look back and you can see historic figures like Joan of Arc, right. She, that the voice in her head was an angel, right. There, there's still some of that today that there's no reason to assume the voice in your head is you, but most of us, the vast majority of us do. And uh, you know, why is that? Um, maybe it's functional. Maybe that's actually cultural evolution instead of some sort of physical evolution. We assume it's, you know, biological or physical, but it could be cultural evolution and it could be useful, right? It's a, it's a, maybe it's a fiction, no different than the fiction that there were gods speaking in our heads, but maybe this fiction is more useful. Like, I, you know, I don't have a, a good answer to that, but I think it's a fun thing to speculate about, right? That there's just something that's like, it's not real, but it's helpful to believe that it's you. 
I mean, it's, it's comforting, you know, especially I think I think one of the other points that you make very clearly early on in the book is this notion that we are not only affected in terms of, you know, how we regard ourselves and the things that we like um, by the people around us and their reactions to us, but also by the rules and regulations that we have to live by in different stages of life. So you make the argument that a child who is told that they need to eat their veggies, go to bed early, et cetera, you know, that they're, that that self is very different from their teenage or even adult self um, when now, you know, they may or may not impose those rules on themselves. Yeah. You know, I think one of the things that I talk about in the book is this tension between the self, the need for the self as created in relationships, but just this need for self and this desire for the feeling of freedom. Um, and one thing I think that this sometimes makes people uncomfortable is that you you can't have a self and be completely free. And, and there's some ways in which that is just definitionally true because your self is a boundary, right? You, you are purposefully bounding something and saying, this is myself and this is not myself. This is me and this is someone else, right? You're drawing lines to construct this coherent sense of like who you are in the world and how you should interact with the world and how other people should interact with you. But in drawing those boundaries, you are also purposefully limiting yourself, right? You're saying, I'm this and I'm not these other things and I can't be these other things. And I think that in different stages in life, the balance between that desire for the construction of self and the desire for the feeling of freedom moves around, right? And one of the things that I, I kind of, you know, play around with is the idea that maybe in adolescence, you're really trying to press against those bounds a little bit. And, you know, and in the moment, it feels like you're finding yourself, you know, whatever mm -hmm. it is. I don't know. What did you do? Did mm -hmm. you dye your hair? Did you pierce yourself? <laughs> you yeah, I had my goth face. Yeah, yeah your heavy metal, face. wore a lot of black. <laughs> <laughs> did you have the sense of like finding yourself? But the funny thing about that is when you, after you pass that phase and you look back on people going through it, it's so clear how they're being influenced and constructed while they're quote unquote, finding themselves, right? Like they, what they're really doing is finding their, a community and then adhering very strictly to those community standards. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, 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 you know, often that community is separate from the one that they've just been in and mindfully so, you know, it's like, it couldn't be more different. Yeah. And as you get older, what's also, I don't know if this is sad or not, but I, my sense is that an old, at an old age, it's as if some communities are excluding you. Right? Like you might see yourself as a part of a community, but they start to, you know, move on in some sense without you. Like that would be a different way of having this feeling of freedom. My guess is if you are excluded, if you feel it as exclusion, as opposed to like a choice of, of moving through different communities, it probably feels a little bit more painful. It feels more like loneliness is my guess. But all of that, what's funny is all of that is associated with what we would think of. I think what we would think of as freedom. I want to be clear here, not what freedom is, because that's a whole big philosophical debate. We could talk about that, but <laughs> the feeling of freedom, I think, can it can feel like loneliness. It can feel exhilarating, but it can also feel terrifying too. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, sometimes I, when I think about limiting the choices that I offer to my kids, I do that specifically because I want them to feel a sense of, I don't want them to feel the anxiety that comes with thinking like, you can do anything you want, you can be anybody you want, you know, <laughs> not that I'm prescribing who they're going to be, but like that kind of angst is really tough to deal with. 
man, it's terrifying. Yeah. I, I, whenever, whenever I'm like, God, I need to like, I need to have, I need to have smaller ambitions. <laughs> Life would be easier. <laughs> yeah. No, absolutely. Or like, or or ambitions that are like, yeah, like less uh, dissimilar to each other. You know, if they were just all like in one domain, that would be so much easier. Yeah, you know, um, it's like the more opportunities in front of you, the more choices to make, the harder it is, right? It's yeah. in some ways, it's, it's again, it's exhilarating, but also, wow, terrifying and exhausting. And, you you know, you bring up the point, too, that so often we um, we miscalculate how much joy something is going to bring or how painful something is going to be. You give the example of someone who thinks, you know, if they win the lottery, like all their problems will be solved. And then you look at lottery winners and you realize, like, they're actually pr- pretty miserable bunch. <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's one of those things where there's a it's um affective forecasting. I don't know if you know that that stuff, but in essence, it's just the idea that when you predict how you will feel in a novel situation, you generally uh, overshoot, right? Because you part of it is you don't what you don't focus on is how much will be the same. Like you have a lot of money, that's great, and it is true that like having money makes it easier. You can buy things, you don't have to worry about healthcare or whatever, you know, childcare these things. But, you know, like your relationships, if they're messed up, they're still messed up. Maybe they're more messed up. Who knows? Right. Like there's so many things that will be the same that you don't focus on that you you lose sight of how much your life will, how little your life will change, in fact. And what do you think about uh, people who go on, say, you know, a psilocybin trip and it doesn't completely kind of dissolves their sense of self. I I wondered like how you, because of this kind of social construct of the self in which you talk about, like how do you think about the the pharmacological tools that can have such a profound effect on someone's concept of self? Yeah, you know, I, um, in the book, I don't talk much about that. I know, I know a little bit about it. Um, one of the things that I find fascinating is that some of the trips that people have have long lasting effects on things like fear of death, right? So there's some evidence that, um, people who take, I believe it's uh, LSD in the moment have afterwards, shortly afterwards, have less fear of death. And then, you know, months later still are, are have maintained some of that. Um, you know, here I can, I, I can only speculate. I think, I think that the reality is that we are in fact, deeply connected to other people in ways that we don't understand that who we are is distributed among the people that we interact with in ways that aren't just the close people but these fleeting interactions that we are embedded in a broad social network and and when i say that i don't just mean that we as a like you can think of us as a coherent you know self-contained node i don't think that's quite right i think that we exist in the social network and that it's possible that drugs break down, that some drugs can break down that sense of being self-contained and open people up to a, a, a broader sense of what they are in a way that really challenges their, their normal experience of life in ways that for some people might be incredibly relieving, right? Um, but in other situations, my guess is could be pretty damn terrifying. Like, you know, so I, I think the drugs just offer an opportunity. Some drugs offer an opportunity to have a different experience of the world. And that's why people take them. People like, I think a lot of mammals like altered states of consciousness because <laughs> it's not only humans, it turns out. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. And, and in some ways, 
you can get to some of the same ultimate conclusions through extensive forms of psychotherapy or, you know, other kinds of work like this where you're examining. And and to me, I thought it was interesting, too, just thinking about, like, you know, um, what are the kinds of jobs that are not going to be re- quickly replaced by artificial intelligence? You know, the the psychotherapist, <laughs> because of the when I was thinking when I was reading your book and I was thinking about how social interactions play such a strong role in terms of how we conceptualize ourselves, like maybe there really is maybe maybe it's like, you know, yeah, like a generative AI or or like you need that human um, interaction but then it also reminded me of this VR game that I wanted to ask your opinion of, of how do you think this works, um, where uh, you it's it's like you tell your problems to Freud and, you know, Freud asks you a series of questions. And then in part two of the game, you are sitting in Freud's body watching a recording of yourself <laughs> telling Freud. So now you're like embodying from Freud's perspective what it sounds like for you, you know, as the other. Uh, and, and I was really curious to hear your thoughts about, like, what do you think this little game does for people, you know? And uh, I mean, this is, in, in some ways, it's a, it's, a, it's a kind of exaggeration of what we do all the time, which is, you know, we, we get dressed in the morning and we kind of have this moment where we think, look in the mirror, and we think, what are other people, how are other gonna pe- people going to see me, <laughs> right? Yeah, you know what's fun? There's a, this makes me think of, and I talk about this in the book, and I'll, I'll try to relate it to this game because I've not heard of that game. It's a, that's a funny one. You know this, this uh, enfacement effect? Do you know the effect? No. Okay. So enfacement is um, you, you can get people to incorporate other people's faces into their conception of their own face. So, and it's also, you can do the same. It's a similar process. You can get people to have an out-of-body experience where they feel like their self is not inside their physical body. It's the same basic procedure. And so in essence, what you do in the enfacement effect is you sit someone across the table from you, like I guess it could be Freud. And instead of talking, you stroke the person's face, um, the participant's face, on the cheek lightly this is what they actually do and you stroke the person's face they're looking at lightly on the cheek and in other in other situations you don't I mean so it's an experiment so in some cases you do a simultaneous stroke in the other condition you don't do the simultaneous stroke and then afterwards you show them a series of photos and the photos range from a photo purely of the participant and purely of their partner and then you morph the photos into their 50-50 and every like and so there's a, a gradient, right? There's like 90% you, 10% them, for example, 80% you, 20% them, 50-50, and then you know, to hundred percent them. And so there's a series of photos, series of photos, and you show them the photos um, in random order and you ask them, just tell me when the photo is mostly you. That's it. Right. So they see a series of photos and they're just like, yep, that's mostly me. Yep, that's mostly me. The people whose faces were stroked simultaneously think it's mostly them, even when it starts to tilt toward most of the other person. So when it's safe, this is not exactly right, but this is close enough. Let's say when it's, you know, I don't know, 53 them, 47 you, you think it's mostly you, like that kind of thing, right? But when people whose faces aren't stroked simultaneously, they don't demonstrate that effect. And so you've, in essence, gotten them to include, to see the other person in their own face, which is, when you think of that, is an amazing thing. 
And you can do a similar thing with out-of-body experience where you have someone put a VR headset set on someone and then let them through the VR headset, see their, see, let's say, see their own body being stroked on the back and you stroke their back in the real world simultaneously. And then they start to see, feel their self in the position of their VR body. So you can do that sort of thing. And so in essence, it's, I guess what I would say is the Freud thing is a mix of so many things that are interesting. One is you can see yourself from the outside. If you think of that as seeing some, seeing someone else as yourself, that is, you can demonstrate that empirically, right? So you, if you think of the possibility of seeing someone in yourself or seeing yourself like in a different place in your physical body as seeing yourself from the outside, you can create that experience. And there's also the kind of whole reflected self thing that you were talking about, which is like you only know yourself through the eyes of someone else. And you put those things together and you get this like funny Freud game. <laughs> yeah. You know, which which uh, which, which for some people is, is, you know, can can be remarkably effective in terms of dealing with their own demons. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Do you think it's like, when you think about like why it is that we see ourselves as sort of reflected by others, is that you know, a function of just the way that we construct our sense of self? Or is it that there needs to be an other for there to be a you, if that makes sense? Like, yeah, I think maybe some of both. But I, I, the easiest one is like, I don't know, let's say you go out and do something, you tell a joke. How could you possibly know if it's funny without other people? Like, there's just no way to know, right? Like, even if you think it's funny, it's like you think it's funny from some perspective, Right. And that might as well be an outside perspective. Like the, another way of thinking about it is how do you know the meaning of your actions? Like you can act and know you did this thing, but what does it mean? The only way you can know what it means is through other people, I'd argue. Like real or imagined, they don't have to really be there, but you have to have some way of, of contextualizing your behavior to make sense of it. That's really interesting because I feel like one of the one of the challenges of um, remote work, of sort of the way in which a lot of knowledge workers in particular 
have shifted in terms of how they do their jobs is very much kind of like you you know you go and you you do your thing by yourself and then you know you have to check in with your team or you have to somehow you know and and the the cadence of when you build in those checks i think is something that is is very important because you can get it wrong, right? You can have a, a case in which you're like on Slack all day long and you get nothing done, <laughs> right? Um, or you can go too long and, you know, start to feel very unproductive because, you know, I think a lot of us thrive on on the, uh, you know, the, the reactions of others to our work. And, uh, you know, I wonder if you have some thoughts about, you know, is there, you know, how, how should people find their kind of optimum balance when it comes to that kind of work? And also, you know, not to add another layer of complexity to it, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, you know, in, in an era in which we are trying to be much more mindful of the ways that our behaviors and our reactions marginalize others, that adds another layer of complexity, importantly so, right? Like in, in, a, in mm -hmm. a good way, but... Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I'll, I'll try the first one and then we'll see where I can get on the second question. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, that was really so, cool. So the first question, um, you know, there's this thing called like, um, what, what's, the, what's the term for it? I'll just describe it, right? There's the level at which you understand the action that you're doing. So for example, let's say you're writing an email. You could think of that as punching buttons on a keyboard. You could think of that as writing words, right? You can think of it as writing sentences, you can think of it as conveying an idea. And all those things are true. It's just the level at which you're describing what you're doing. So I think in terms of the cadence of checking in, it maybe it depends on the level at which you think about the work. Like what's the meaningful level? What's the, where's the meaningful break or the meaningful level at which you understand what you're doing, right? So if you're putting together a pitch deck, maybe it's like each slide is meaningful. Maybe the full deck is meaningful. I, I don't know. But at what level is that task? What are the meaningful levels of production? And I think that's where you can think of a check-in, right? You don't have to check in continuously. That doesn't make any sense. So you have to think about the appropriate level of at which the work makes sense conceptually. That's that's kind of how I might think about that. Um in terms of remote work and other people, so I don't. So let me make sure I have the question right. So is it how we engage with people? Um, I don't know from different backgrounds. Is that what well, we're, you're asking about? I mean, I think yeah. I mean, there, there. I think there's there's sort of like yeah, two two layers of questions in there as well. I mean, the first is in terms of remote work just in in general of like, you know, what it, what is the sweet spot of feeling like you're still connected with your colleagues? And I think a lot of people are debating that now, like, do you or, you know, like, do you have to come into work three days a week? And, you know, if you're if you're less experienced, you benefit more for those from those like, you know, individual interactions. But if you're higher up the chain, then maybe you, you know, could spend more time out of the office and not not have it worry about you or like not have it uh, affect you. So that that was like one side of like, you know, is there when you think about your work and the sense of self and how that relates to like motivation to work or, you know, you know, the quality of what you're doing, like, you know, how, how should people make decisions on how much face time is necessary? Um, okay. Got it. So let me, let me try to tackle that one. Um, let me first start by saying I have no good answer. 
That's a hard question. <laughs> let me, so let me, but I would say the first thing I would ask is how much did people feel like they were connected when they were in person? The assumption that people felt more connected is probably true, but more complex than people imagine. So some people felt more connected to work, you know, than others did, right? So that that's the first thing I would note, that not everyone's experienced in-person work in the same way. And then I would ask, like, how do how many people get their sense of self from work, from the people they interact with at work? And that also probably varies, right? And that seems, it's not quite the same question. They're related, but they're not the same question. So if you're talking individual level, that's what I would think about. If you're talking at the level of the organization, then I guess the question is, what what units need to be intact for the organization to function effectively? Like what units need to work in a deep, collaborative, interdependent way, right? Where the success of the team depends on the interactions um, and the success of each individual member of the team. Not all work is that way, right? Some of it just aggregates. And that obviously is easier to do in a remote way than when there's a deep need for interdependence and a sense of knowing each other, right? Where I can intuit what you need and try to give you what you need in a way that um, supports all of our success. That, that, you know, can you do that remotely? Probably. Is it easier to do in person? I'd guess yes. So I think there, there's obviously, it depends on the nature of the work as well. So now to sort of the the more challenging, not that that wasn't a challenging question, um, of of marginalized groups and how, you know, we're trying to now create workplaces, we're trying to create environments in which everybody is welcome. And, you know, in some ways you end the book with this both hopeful and almost... Um, you know, I would say like, you know, well, this idea that if if the self really is constructed with our social interactions, then we not only have the power to affect other people's sense of self, but the responsibility to be careful about how we do that and that we can create a society, you know, that is kinder, more inclusive, better <laughs> if we're if we're mindful about that. And so I wonder if you could tell us um, about how you if someone wants to, to, to go in that direction and they want to do the work, what are the kinds of things that you would suggest they might start with? You know, this is, I, I find this interesting in myself. There's something I noted recently. So, I, you know, I've been going out and talking about the book. And sh- after I talk about the book, shortly after, I'm like, oh, I feel like I'm a better person. <laughs> 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 because when I interact with people after I've talked about the book, I really do interact with people differently. Like, I don't, I, huh. and this is a funny thing to say, maybe I shouldn't admit this, but. Um, you said it's not a self-help book, and now it sounds like a self-help book. <laughs> it's not self-help at all. It's not self-help at all. Like, this is what's so funny to me about, this is why I feel funny admitting that, I, you know, well, I'll just say, I, I hope the book is a, a book that um, opens up possibility, right? It, it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not intended to tell you what to do. It's not prescriptive. So if people get it, they shouldn't expect some kind of like, these are the five things you should do. I'm very adamant that that's not what it is because what do I know about individuals' personal lives? I can't tell you how to <laughs> fix your life, but it should lead you to ask questions that will be useful to you. Like, And at the very least, I hope really interesting, right? That it makes the world a more interesting place. That's the hope. But for me, when I talk about the book, the way it works for me anyway, is that I think more deeply about my interactions with other people. Like I just pay more attention to other people. And that, it turns out, really changes my experience. 
like I, I, I don't, I, I mean, this is, it's, uh, and it's funny. Like if I was a reader, I think this is what would happen to me though. It's not meant to be self-help. Like I feel better and I don't, I don't, it just, and this sounds again, crazy that I just realized I've been talking about it and writing this book for like now years, but I just realized that like, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago <laughs> that, that it's um just really taking other people seriously. And by that, I mean like understanding that it's like, their life is their lives are as complete and as full and as diverse and complex as yours and that doesn't require you to like you know dive deep into every interaction to try to examine everything about their experience but it really does for me anyway changes how I interact with people and in in ways that make me feel better um and i think m- make me a better interaction partner even in tiny little interactions that most people don't pay much attention to. And so people interact with me differently and it feels good. I don't, I don't know what to say about it. Like I, I just, I, when I, when I am in that space, it feels good. I mean, I think, yeah, if, if there's a respect to the privileged place that our social interactions have on, you know, on our well-being. Uh, if we start to understand that, then it becomes something that, yeah, we don't take for granted and we are a little bit more mindful about how we engage with them. Just like, you know, we know exercise helps our body. So now we like prescribe it in. So it's like, <laughs> right. Uh-huh. Um, I-, I like that a lot. And I, you know, and that that sort of is an outward looking approach. Like, okay, so if I understand the impact that my social interactions can have on others, then I can be more empathetic, kind, generous, more actively listening to those around me. And that's what I can do. But there's also understanding that other people's behaviors, the effect that they have on my sense of self. And and here, you know, you bring up this study, um, classic study of uh, Asian American women who are asked to, you know, do some math. And if they are, you know, like, well, you tell us, tell us the results of that uh-huh. study. So the the lead author is Margaret She. Um, she looked at, as you said, Asian American women and um, how they did in math because the stereotypes of Asian Americans and the stereotypes of women are at odds, right? So women are stereotyped as bad at math. Asian Americans are stereotyped as good at math. And she was wondering if these two identities could coexist and then be reflected in how they uh, how these women performed in essence. So. She gives them basically, she gives them math tests. And before the test, she simply asks, like, you know how you get tested. Well, I assume everyone knows this. And you're like, you know, I'll ask all these questions. Like, what's your gender? What's your age? What's your ethnicity? Blah, blah, blah. So in her case, she asked for their ethnicity in one in one condition and asked for their gender in another, right? So this is just, a, you know, normal kind of things that people get asked before tests. And when she asked for their ethnicity, they do better than when she asked for their gender. It's more or less the effect even though in both cases they're they're motivated to do as well so it shouldn't be a function of like they they don't care they should you know be as motivated and the the explanation is in essence that the expectations associated with the stereotypes of the particular group that are activated and activated simply means asking them to reflect on it briefly affects their performance right they perform in line with the stereotypes and the way i interpret that study is there are different people in those situations. That the self that is active is a different self. That to be Asian American is a different thing than to be a woman. And you can obviously be an Asian American woman, but you can also be Asian American and you can be a woman. Uh, and 
the context, in this case, the social context that the experiments are induced, changed how they behaved and, in my mind, changed who they were. Um, and that is incredibly compelling. And I don't, I don't know, it's, it, if you reflect on what that means about how you move through the world, like who are you in any particular moment and what does it mean to be that different person, it's really amazing to think that we are potentially that fluid as we go through our lives. I mean, on the one hand, it gives you the kind of superpower of being like a chameleon. So you can turn on the right self for the right situation if you could figure out how to do that at will. Maybe like really excellent meditators or, you know, people who do a lot of mushrooms can do that. <laughs> but on the other hand, I think there's also a kind of underlying warning there of if you begin to put yourself into situations in which negative stereotypes of some part of your identity are reinforced, like that is going to have an impact on how you regard yourself and potentially your behavior. Mm -hmm. I mean, the thing that, this is one of the things that for me is most constraining about life that is a, a weird thing to think about, but there is no way for you to exist outside of your social political moment. Like this is the history you're in and that's it. Right. And had you lived 300 years or a thousand years ago, things would have been very, very different. Right. If you lived 300 years, a thousand years in the future, very, very different. And there, I'm not talking about the technology and those things are like, yes. But I mean, what it would mean to be you, like the constraints that your particular moment impose on you. To be a woman now is different than it was to be a woman 100 years ago. Like, that's, that's just what it is. And you have no say in it. <laughs> I don't know what to say about it. Like, this is your moment. This is the moment you exist in, right? And there's, it's not, you know, it's, it is confining. It's not the case that people have no flexibility within their moment. But it's, um, you still live in your moment. Well, I want, want to remind our listeners that Brian Lowry's book, Selfless, The Social Creation of You, is available at booksellers everywhere. As you think about this future, this 300 year in the future <laughs> time period, how do you think, I mean, do you have a, a sense of how, like, you know, whether it's AI or whether it's our politics or climate change, um, do you ever see a world in which the usefulness of the sense of self is no longer there and we kind of dissolve into <laughs> some other kind of state of being because of the way that we've chosen our social interactions or I don't know? That's a really good question. I, it's hard for me to predict. I have no good sense. I think it will it evolve? Yes. And I think it's hard to see how it evolve because it's, it seems just the experience of it is that it just is. It doesn't feel like something that is mutable. It feels like the nature of humanity. And, and I don't, I'm pretty sure that's not true. So here's what I'm, I'm confident is likely to change. The boundaries around the groups that we used to define ourselves will change. So for example, race, the nature of race will change. In 300 years, I'd be shocked if I mean, obviously, I will be dead, but I, <laughs> I'm pretty, I'm pretty confident that the way we conceive of race is not the way it will be conceived us three, three hundred years from now. Um, I'm, I'm pretty confident that nations won't exist 
300 years from now in exactly the same way they exist now. Um, and these are things that are about the self. And I find that really interesting, right? So I will just, for example, nations are only about 200 years old. The idea of the nation state as we currently understand it is, yeah, two at most 300 years old. And people take that as just a given. That's how it's always been. And that's just not true. So geopolitics will almost certainly shift and not just in terms of the power of what nation is more powerful, but the organization of it, I imagine, will shift. And as those things shift, I assume they'll have unforeseen, you know, almost too complex to understand consequences for the way each individual understands themselves too. So the self could shift in ways that I just, I have, I don't, I don't know what that will look like, but probably, yeah. Um, I think the, the way we organize the economy, like the exchange between individuals, like material exchange almost certainly will shift, right? So capitalism, as we understand it, is also relatively recent as a, as a way to manage things, like as a way to organize on purpose that probably will shift. Um, and again, what will the effect of all these things be on how people understand themselves? Who knows, but pretty sure it'll be different. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's really fascinating for me to think about because when we, when I read about historical figures and, you know, I think, okay, Julius Caesar, Julius Caesar existed. I don't think of him as that different from me. I mean, (laughs) in fundamental ways, he's very different, but you know, he probably got hungry and he probably had some angst and, you know, uh, and yet he was probably very different from me in terms of his (laughs) inner mental world. (laughs) Yeah. In ways, this is what I think, because it's like, yeah, the mental world, like not just, you know, what does it mean to be Roman and to be a general and to be a man in that time and place, you know, um, it's also like, what does it mean to be human in that time and place? What does it mean to be a self in that time and place? And one of the things, even in Rome, I do, I mean, there was, there's arguments that the family was like a different, the family defined the self in a different way than it does today. Like that people will talk about that, that, that study ancient Rome and ancient Greece, like these things, they were like, really the family was a unit in a way that we, we not the way we think of it now, but maybe more, more intimately defining of what it meant to be you than we understand it now. So those are examples that it's hard. And then here's the thing, it's hard to even inhabit, to even imagine in a clear way what it would be. Um, so you know, I find that fascinating. I love to think about that, right? It's like, that's, I think, maybe the sci-fi nerd in me or something, or, you know, the sci-fantasy nerd in me. It's like, these not just me in a different place and time, but what it would even mean to be me? Like, what yeah. does that even look like? Yeah. What if, what what if humans like are really like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, you can't do it, but no. how do you not think about it? <laughs> Well, that gives us a lot to think about, Brian Lowry. Thanks so much for being on Inquiring Minds. Thanks so much for having me. It was fun. So that's it for another episode. Thanks for listening. If you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. And if you'd like to get an ad-free version of the show, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. I want to especially thank our longtime patrons, David Noel, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, Jordan Miller, Kyle Raihala, Michael Gagul, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joelle, Stephen Meyer Ewald, Dale Lamaster, and Charles Blyle. 
Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac, and I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. See you next time. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.